Daniel chapter 2. If you are new or newer, you missed a week or two, let me just kind of explain what's going on. Because um, this is interesting, right? Every book of the Bible, it takes place at some point in history, and you're kind of knowing, like, what's the context? What was happening? We mentioned this before. We went through the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, like last year. We ended 2 Kings, like leading up to the book of Daniel, actually. 2 Kings ends with them being taken captive by the Babylonians. They, they're besieging Jerusalem, taking them back into Babylon. There's three waves of people being taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, if you guys remember, and I, we review because it, hopefully it helps in some ways, I don't know, but there was the kingdom of Israel under Saul, David, and Solomon, all the 12 tribes together. But after Solomon, it split into two kingdoms, right? The northern kingdom had 10 tribes, and the northern kingdom was called, there we go, Israel. Like I thought it was, you're like, I thought it was called Israel. It was. Just, I know, it's confusing. The, the southern tribe, or the southern two tribes, that kingdom was called Judah. So we know that the Assyrians uh, besieged their capital, uh, the northern kingdom capital, the 10 tribes of Samaria. They, they besieged it in like the 7th, 8th century. And then the southern kingdom lasted another 100 years. But the idea was the Assyrians took the northern 10 tribes captive. We call them even to this day like the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Kind of like disappeared into history, sadly. Then the, the two southern tribes, uh, the tribe of Judah, where the temple was in Jerusalem. You have Judah, you have Benjamin, you have the Levites. But they, that, made up the, that made up Judah. And the Babylonians came in and took them captive in a few different waves. And Daniel and his friends were part of that first wave of captivity. So the book of Daniel starts essentially with these teenage boys, probably around 15 years old, being taken into a foreign land hundreds of miles away from their family, from their home, everything they knew, their culture, their religion, brought into a pagan city. I mean, I can't imagine that idea. Just come and takes you, your teenager, ripped away from everything, and they say, you know what? You're some of the best and brightest of your country. We want to raise you up. The Babylonians did this well. They really tried to assimilate people into their culture, like embrace our gods, embrace our education, embrace our world system, embrace our philosophy and mindset, become like us. Somehow, Daniel and his friends were able to learn all of that and yet still remain faithful to their faith. So they're able to assimilate in some ways, but be very distinct. And so the idea for us and why we chose to start Daniel in the year 2024 uh, as a church is to say, how do we have resilient faith in just a pagan moment in our history? Like, how do we say, you know, it doesn't matter what they try to teach us or share with us or, or their moral values to try to press on us. How do we be resilient people in just like a pagan moment in a pagan culture, essentially? And so you have Daniel who, and these guys who are just a wonderful example of this. It's like they're all in. They're not going to compromise their faith. And you see them living out this really unique lifestyle where I can't imagine this social pressure, the economic pressure. I mean, the, all the pressures to conform and become like the Babylonians, and yet they still remain faithful to the one true God. And again, I, I'm, I'm, again, I know I'm, you know, giving you a lot here, but my hope and prayer for our time in this book is like, God, just do that in us. We need more Daniels, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We need, we need more men and women. He says, it doesn't matter what you do. I'm going to remain faithful to the one true God. It doesn't matter what you teach me, what you share, what you try to shove down my throat. I'm still going to remain faithful and true to the one, the one true God. And I, I love this book for so many reasons. That's one of the main reasons. Now, if you're like, okay, what's happening now? So in Daniel 2, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream. 
this dream troubles him greatly. He's angry. He wants to know the dream. He wants his enchanters. He wants the Chaldeans. He wants the sorcerers, the mediums. He wants them to tell him, tell me my dream, and then when you tell me the interpretation, I'll believe you because you told me my dream. And if you are with us last week, they're like, no one can do that. Tell us the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. He's like, no, no, I've seen this play out before. I want you to tell me my dream, then I'll know your interpretation is true. And they're like, no one can do this. No man can do this. No gods can do this. And Daniel's like, my God can do this. And if you remember last week, Daniel 2, we, kind of, we read about him and his friends getting together, seeking mercy from heaven. So essentially, he turns to his astrologers and says, I want you to tell me what the gods are saying. They're like, we can't. Daniel says, let me turn to the, not the heavens, but let me turn to the God of heaven. He can answer. I love this because we, we looked at this briefly. And by the way, this is fun, actually. Last week, we talked about what do you turn to in crisis and we talked about how for Nebuchadnezzar, he turned to astrology, essentially, his enchanters, his mediums. And we kind of brought that up. It was actually a really cool conversation, I would say, in small groups this week, hopefully in one-on-ones with you guys. I think it brought up a lot. Like, what do we turn to in those moments? I will say it's interesting. This week, we have a church phone where you can call the phone, and it's like a Google phone. It's not like a real phone. It's like a Google voice phone. So we'll get the voicemails and call back. But we got a phone call, and I've read the voicemail. It's from a medium. She goes, hi, my name is, I won't say her name, um, I'm a medium in the area, and I don't know if your church is open to this, but we do um, readings, and we'll also help communicate from beyond the veil if you want your church to speak to their loved ones. And uh, that was the voicemail I read that. I'm like, what? we just talked about this on Sunday, so I, I'm going to send her the sermon from last Sunday. Um, be like, yeah, it's funny you ask for the type of church that does this. Um, but it's funny, we talked about just how in this, in this world, and we looked at some of the stats and data of like Gen Z, millennial, just the idea of there seems to be more of an interest in the supernatural and people are turning to the heavens, but I want to encourage you and everyone to turn to the God of heaven. Not just the heavens, not to your sign, none of that nonsense, but to the God of heaven. And so this is what Daniel does. It's like, again, I want you to understand, he's surrounded by the Chaldeans. He is a, he's surrounded by the intellects, the astrologers, the wise men of their day, the seers. He's surrounded by all these guys, and he's like, my God can answer you. The heavens will not answer this, but my God of heaven. And you will see this phrase. I'm not just emphasizing that for no reason. You'll see this phrase a lot in Daniel 2, the God of heaven. Go ahead and turn to the heavens. But multiple times, he's like, the God of heaven, the God of heaven, the God of heaven. It's a unique title we see for God here in, in Daniel 2. The God of heaven can reveal this. So that brings us, and if you remember last week, we ended with Daniel getting the revelation. The mystery was revealed. Remember last week, the, the title was Mystery Revealed. The word mystery appeared five times, revealed appeared seven times. The idea was that God's like, I want to reveal this mystery. The mystery's revealed. We don't know what his dream is yet, just in case you're with us, like new to with this. We don't know what his dream was yet, but Daniel got the mystery. He understood the dream, and he praises God and thanks God before he even talks to Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, God, thank you that you revealed in this beautiful prayer from Daniel to God. So that brings us here to Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. I know it's a long intro. Forgive me. So you guys with me? So Daniel 2, 24. Daniel just got done praising God. God, you're the God of heaven. You're the revealer of mysteries. You know all things is essentially what he's saying. And now we're going to see him share what this dream is and what this dream means for Nebuchadnezzar. You guys ready? No, it doesn't sound like it. You guys ready? So um, it's a little bit longer, verse 24 through 49. So I'm actually going to pray, and then we'll read this text as we walk through it. All right, so why don't you just bow your head with me. Let's just kind of slow down a bit. Just, we, need, we need the Lord to really bring understanding to this text. So, Father, we just say um, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you are the God who reveals, that you are not a God who wants to leave us in the dark, but you bring us to the light, and that, God, you are light. God, thank you that, um, 
You're the one who reveals the mysteries of this world. And I just thank you that uh, you don't want to hide things from us. Lord, you want to reveal your word and your truth to us. I thank you for what, uh, what this meant for, for Nebuchadnezzar, but what it means for us. We see that, Lord, the kingdoms come to an end. But on this rock, this mountain that grows and grows, Lord, it will always remain, and your kingdom will always remain. And I just ask that you would just speak this over us, remind us that our kingdom, our lives, our world, all these things that matter to us will come and go, but your word and your kingdom endures forever. And so, Lord, you just want to say thank you, and we need you in your precious name. Amen. <clears throat> um, I'm grateful, I'm sure you are too, that I'm not God, right? I'm not God. You're not God. I'm grateful for that. If you're married, aren't you glad your spouse isn't God? I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. But I'm so glad that I'm not God. That'd be scary. It'd be scary if you were God and how we would do things, what we would do, what we'd value. It's interesting to me because um, I think a lot of people would say, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't want to be God. But I think internally, a lot of people want to be God. I think there's a lot of worldviews even that it's like, we're all gods. And kind of introduce this idea that we have like this God power in us. And it's a very bizarre kind of thought. Um, the title today, by the way, is simply Let God Be God. Because I, I, and this is one of those things where I think we might fight against this more than we realize. I think that we all have this little thing in us that wants control, that wants to be God, that wants to be worshipped. You know, we have this little, like, you know, treat yourself, worship yourself kind of mentality. And I think we do have to fight this and be aware of this. Even reading about this this week and setting up on this, I thought it was interesting. One of the authors talked about how Lyndon B. Johnson, remember that? That was a president. Um, Lyndon B. Johnson had a guy in his cabinet. I think his name was Bill, Bill Moyers. And he was a cabinet member who was actually also uh, an ordained minister. He's a, he's a pastor. But he was a cabinet member. He had a little meeting one day. And he said, hey, Bill, would you pray for us? And Bill was there in this like, cabinet meeting. And he started like mumbling a little prayer. And, you know, the president, Johnson, goes, hey, Bill, speak up. And he goes, um, no offense, sir, but I wasn't, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> and then he kept praying. And I love that. I love that analogy. I love that thought. I love that experience. You know, the prayer. Hey, speak up. I want to hear you. I'm not even talking to you. Why does it matter? We have, I think, this within us, this little thought or desire to, to want to be, be God. You know, um, there's been a lot of work and a lot of books written about uh, AA, Alcoholics Anomaly. Uh, uh, not, I can't even say the word now. Alcoholics Anonymous. There we go. Um, and it's funny, you know, I've talked to a lot of you and a lot of friends who've come out of AA and how God has used that program in just mighty ways. And it's amazing when you see some of the content and the 12 steps. And honestly, it seems like they're doing discipleship better than the churches. Like, we got to just be honest. Like, they're doing discipleship so well in many ways. And I know that for many people, this idea of turning to a higher power has opened them up to being maybe there is a God and maybe this God is Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm not saying this to completely endorse everything they say and do, but I do think there's some power behind it. And here's what I, I want to say. There's this uh, author. His name is Ernest Kurtz. And he studied uh, Alcoholics Anom Anonymous, I can't even say it, for years. And he ended up writing a book called Not God. The book was called Not God. And he's basically saying the power lied within them all recognizing I'm not God. And those who seem to do well seem to come to the conclusion that I'm not God. Those who fell back into their addictive behaviors and patterns kind of saw they, they couldn't surrender that truth of I'm not God. And so here's what he wrote. He summarizes his like, time studying AA. And he says, fundamental to the recovery process is that healing and sanity begin with a single realization that I am not God. Hear that again. Healing and sanity begin with a single realization that I'm not God. We fight against this. 
Um, I think Nebuchadnezzar fought against this. We'll see this in different chapters. We'll see there is like a God complex within Nebuchadnezzar. We'll see this next week clearly. I find it fascinating. I cannot wait for Daniel 3. But you see this God complex. Then you see in Dan- you do- Daniel does not have this God complex. You see Daniel had the exact, Daniel's like, I get it. I'm not God. You're not God. But there is a God. And he can reveal this to us. And I think that this is the idea that I want to kind of explore with you guys as we walk through this is Daniel's like, let me introduce to you the God of gods, the King of kings. Let me introduce to you, yes, this is a pagan, pluralistic, polytheistic kind of society here in Babylon. Everyone kind of brings their own God into the mix. You're going to see today who the one true God is. And you need to let God be God. You need to see that he's over this all. So as we walk through our text today, as Daniel really explains the dream and explains the meaning behind the dream, as Daniel's doing this, we'll kind of walk through this in a few different ways. Here's the first in verse 24 to 30. God knows all. Then we're going to say God is over all. And then God honors faithfulness. All right, I know this is not super profound, but just bear with me. God knows all. God is over all. And God honors faithfulness. This is kind of what we see from our text today. So let's break it down. Verse 24. Let's jump into the story. Daniel has the dream. He has the dream revealed to him. He's excited. He has it. He worships. He praises God. Look at verse 24. What does it say? Daniel 2 verse 24 says, Therefore Daniel, he went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show you the king, the interpretation. Verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. And said thus to him, to Nebuchadnezzar, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, remember he got that name, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Verse 27, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But, everyone say but, but, that's always a great word in the Bible. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he, was, he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your, of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, King, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, The mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And then he's going to get to the dream in a second. Don't read ahead. All right, wait, bear with me. I love this. Uh, Daniel goes, hey, Arioch, me and my boys, we prayed, we sought the Lord, we know the dream and its interpretation. Remember, Arioch was the guy that went in to kill them. He gave them basically a day to pray for the dream, to know the dream and its interpretation. He goes, Arioch, we know the dream. And I love what it says. You saw that too, but we'll put the verse up in verse 25. Arioch goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. I love that Arioch just is like, yo, by the way, I found this guy. He did not find the guy. I don't know what that is, by the way. There, there's something about that. Like, and I don't even think Daniel would be like, I, I found you. Like, there, Daniel's okay as long as he gets in, you know, he's like, I don't need the credit. But there is something. That, have you been around people like this? It's like, oh, we did this. And it's like, did you? There's just this thing, like, he wants attention. He shares this. Verse 27, uh, Daniel's like, listen, I can give you the interpretation, but I love what he says. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals the mysteries. This is important. God knows all. 
He's like, I know, the king, that you, you've sought other people. I know that you sought astrologers and wise men. No one can, but there is a God in heaven. This to me, you know, there's certain verses um, that maybe you read across the Bible that, you know, sometimes like it's weird. I almost feel guilty sometimes when I, I read a verse and like explain it or, you know, add to it or like share with it because I'm like, I just want people to kind of discover this on their own. There's some verses where like, I want you to be in prayer or be alone with the Lord. And then you read that and the Lord does something in your heart with that. Um, this verse is one of those verses for me where it's like, it's so sweet in the moment when you read it. And you're like, I hope other people have this kind of moment with the Lord alone where you read this and it's like, hey, no one can but there is a God in heaven. And then you kind of just sit in that thought for a little while. Like church, I really do want you to sit in, that, sit in that thought for a second. I think we do need to be reminded, no one can solve the problem that you face, but there is a God in heaven. No one can bring healing the way you want or need, but there is a God in heaven. No one can give you or satisfy the answers and questions and longings of your heart, but there is a God in heaven. Like, this is one of those verses where you read it and you're like, yes, Lord, like, it's so worshipful. Daniel's saying, um, I want you to understand there is a God in heaven. No one can do this, but, you know, I I've honestly feel like there's moments in my life where, like, I do forget this just amazing reality. Like, I will call people, look to people, need help, and it's great to have friends, and it's great to have help, and it's great to look to people. But just Daniel's first inclination is, like, I'm going to seek the God of heaven. The astrologers, the ones who seek the heavens, they can do nothing for you. But the God in heaven, there is a God in heaven. I want you to explore that thought. Hey, there is a God in heaven. Maybe you even struggle with kind of being, whether it's an atheist or agnostic, there is a God in heaven. And I would almost just encourage you to explore that thought more. Maybe you've dismissed it, you put it off, you read Richard Dawkins' book at 21 years old and you forever settled it in your heart and maybe you just need to re revisit that thought. Maybe at 21 it just kind of affirmed your biases and maybe you actually need to re-look re into that thought. There is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. And also I say Christians, it's funny, you know, sometimes I think we can be the most functional atheists around, right? You know what a functional atheist is? You might believe there's a God, but you don't live that way. And it's, it is terrifying. Listen, there's a verse that I share with our small group, and you guys know this is in 2 Timothy. He talks about in the latter days, they will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. That, that is a verse that I honestly am like, oh, Lord, I, please let that not be me. I don't want to have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Daniel's saying, not just I know there's a God in heaven academically. I, I know in my mind but I know the power, like he's saying, there's a God in heaven who can reveal to you this mystery. There's a God in heaven who has the power and authority right now to give that to you, and he's about to give it to you. And I just think we always have to sit in that. Like we, we can say, we know there's a God in heaven, but then we still live our lives like God does not answer prayers. And still live our lives like prayer doesn't matter or change things. And yet we saw, see absolutely does with Daniel time and time again. Daniel turns to prayer and God intercedes and God moves and does things in the spiritual realm that I don't fully fathom. And I, I just want to say this, like, I can't read this passage and not hear the heart of Daniel. To Daniel's like, before I just tell, I, I would have jumped right to it. I, I don't even want to, like, explain myself on Daniel. My thought is, like, if I talk too much, he's going to kill me. He's like, he's like, yes, king, let me tell you, but first you need to know there's a God in heaven. Like, just get to the dream, bro. Like, that's my thought. Like, jump to it, man. Like, this is life and death, in a sense, for you and for Ariok and everyone around you. But Daniel, like, decides to preach for a second. No one can do this. No one can answer this. But there's a God in heaven. And I do think like maybe you are in a moment where you feel overwhelmed, but there's a God in heaven. And maybe you feel depressed and anxious, but there's a God in heaven. And maybe you're at this point where you want to give up, but there's a God in heaven. And I think that that phrase is just we have to sit in. But there's a God in heaven. And we might know this, but do we know this? And this is one of those things where I could talk about it and even and go, Lord, I can talk about this from stage, but I need to experience this. Like I need to just sit in this for a little bit. 
I love when Paul was talking to the Corinthians and he goes, I did not come with persuasive words, but in demonstration and power of the Spirit. You know, you could hear the most persuasive sermon ever, or the most persuasive arguments for why there is a God, and it still will not change the heart of man. We need demonstration and power of the Spirit. Paul's like, I did not come to you with persuasive words, but just the Holy Spirit was moving in the simplicity of the message. And I, I think the church, again, I just want to sit in that of like, you need to know there's a God in heaven, atheist or agnostic. You need to know there's a God in heaven, Christian, who's a functional atheist. You need to know there's a God in heaven, Christian, who's been walking with Jesus for 50 years. There's a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There's a God in heaven who doesn't want to keep you in the dark, who wants to bring all things to light. But there's a God in heaven. This is Daniel. It's again, one of those verses I just hope you can sit in and think. So he says this, there's a God in heaven. And I love what he says in verse 30. He says, but as for me, this mystery, that's not how he says this. This mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Again, that phrase, not because of any wisdom that I have. Do you hear this? Daniel by no means wants to take the credit or glory, okay? You gotta understand this. Like, there is something within us that wants to take credit or glory. We gotta fight that. Daniel's like, it's not because I have this wisdom and I'm like, so therefore, you know, if you really want to know God, like it's, I'm your only option here. He's like, God just wants to speak to you. There's a God who wants to reveal this to you, Nebuchadnezzar, to you. He cares about you. The credit doesn't go to me. The credit goes to God. There's a God who wants to reveal this to you. I think this is so simple yet so profound. Um, Proverbs 26, 12 says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. You know, if he was like, uh, if Daniel was wise in his own eyes, well, because of my great wisdom and my seeking of my God, he's like, no, not because of my wisdom, but there's a God who wants to reveal this. Don't be wise in your own eyes. There's more hope for a fool. So there's like some humility and this lack of ego. Ariok, you see the ego, Daniel, you're like, nope, it's God. He gets the credit, he gets the glory. Uh, I love this idea of Sinclair Ferguson. He's a commentator who said this. He says, this is the spirit of Jesus before the high priests and Pilate. It is the spirit of Elijah before Jezebel. It is the spirit of John the Baptist before Herod. Daniel is full of the spirit of truth. Even Nebuchadnezzar can, can recognize it. So just the very fact that he's coming in with humility, with a sense of there's no ego here. Let me just tell you that there is a God who sees you. Um, before we move on, I have found that... Um, I can maybe be right in what I'm saying, but so be wrong in the delivery that it's not received well. Or you can think you're right or feel like you're right, and, but how you deliver it matters. And I just want you to like almost just point out Daniel's posture to the king. I think it made, the, the message to King Nebuchadnezzar is not going to be one that he would necessarily like. But I do think he's, he's, he's one, he's very confident, he's very sure. You're going to see the end of verse 45, he's like, this is sure and from the Lord. But yet there's this humility and grace there's this, like, there's this such an amazing approach, I think, that prepares um, Nebuchadnezzar's heart to receive this message. And so I'd say it's not just maybe um, the truth of what we're saying, but how we communicate the truth matters. And I think Daniel's a phenomenal example of that. He's not shying away from truth. He's not covering things up or lessening it, but he's gracious and tactful and humble in his approach. You with me on that? So number one is this. Daniel makes it really clear. God knows all. There's a God in heaven. He knows all. Church, do not forget this before we move on. There is a God in heaven. And if you, get, you struggle with that, I would say, please re-explore that. I don't care if you settle it in your heart at 22 years old by watching some YouTube videos. There is a God in heaven. And please re-explore that. And please be open to that. And functional Christians or atheists, please be open to this idea that there's a God in heaven. And then number two, he moves on. But number two is this, God is overall. Look at verse 31, because this is now the interpretation. This is probably what you've been waiting for. You're like, your side is taking way too long. Okay, verse 31. 
this is what he says. He's like, all right, here's what you saw. Verse 31, you saw, he's telling him what his dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Here's what you saw. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, uh, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them can be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now, we will tell you the king, it's interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given uh, the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. In another kingdom, inferior to you, which is just interesting. Notice how he's, this progression. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So a second and a third. Verse 40. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters, uh, and, and sh- sh- shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it, it shall break and crush all these. Verse 41. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the furnace of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. Verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Listen, this is the huge part. This is like the point. In those days, the God of heaven, Everyone say God of heaven. Over and over again. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall, not, shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. Whew, okay, it's like, where do you begin, All right? The dream is fascinating that, that he's had. I want to also just bring up this dream he has. It seems to be reoccurring as you lay your head in bed at night. You're thinking about your ends. That, that's something he referenced earlier. It's fascinating. He just keeps thinking, like, what will be the end of this? God gives him this dream. Um, I do think that's an po- important thing to ponder. You know, rather than running away from your thoughts by going to your phone and kind of ignoring those thoughts, those deep thoughts of life, maybe sit in those thoughts a little bit. What is the point of all of this? What's the end of all of this? I think it's okay to lay in your bed, lay in your bed at night with your head down just going, God, why am I here? What are you doing? What's the point of this? I love this because, one, this was something heavy on his heart and that God also wants to reveal it to this pagan king who destroyed his people. And God wants to reveal to him what's the point of all of this and what comes after this. He literally is wondering, what is after this? What a great question. Don't shy away from this question. Don't dumb down this question and be like nothingness. 
right, what is after this? Why does every culture and civilization all over the world in different ways have some sort of worldview on what is after this? It's probably because there is something after this. And he's having that, this lingering in his heart, and God gives him this vision. Now, a couple things. Obviously, God has shown a couple of main big thoughts to him before we get into the details of this dream. He's basically saying, I'm over all dreams. I'm over its interpretations. I can give this to you. I can answer your questions. I'm the one who will satisfy the longings and the questions of your heart. You have questions in your heart? I'm the one who can satisfy those questions because I'm the one who gave you those questions. And we have to see that God is completely sovereign over all of this. We have to see that God is the only one who can give this. Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, this kind of just like makes this point really clear. He says, God says, for I am God. I am God. And there is no other. I am God. I feel like God has like, do you, do you understand? <laughs> There's no other God. I'm God. And there is none like me. Declaring, here it is, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I'm God. I can tell you the beginning. I can tell you the end. I can tell you my purpose behind that, why it is that. This is essentially what he's doing with Nebuchadnezzar. Let me tell you the end and let me tell you the purpose of this mountain that shall grow and grow and grow and never move and be established forever. So he's like, I want to tell you what this is. Here's, um, I love how one author put this because before we get into like the micro details of what, what, is, what is what material, what I love about this, one author said is, since the whole world is in God's hands, your world is in God's hand. I feel like it's just, before we even just kind of go into this, sometimes um, we'll read about another kind of vision he has in Daniel 7. There, there's a lot of different visions and dreams we're going to be walking through. But before we kind of get lost in the details, I don't want to miss like the forest because of the trees. You got to see, there's a God who's like, I hold everything in my hand. Therefore, you're in my hand. And there's something that's so freeing about this. We can get kind of weird, and Christians can kind of have like whiteboards and be like a timeline. And be like, Do you know what this means? And we can kind of get bizarre with it. And maybe there's a time and place for that, but maybe we should actually slow down and not miss the, some of the big pictures. God is over it all, and God's like, and I got you. And I know how this ends. And let me tell you how this ends. So, but let's like jump into this. Um, he says a few different things. Uh, he has this image of a man, obviously, head of gold and silver. Like you see this kind of progression happening here. Uh, I'll put the, the image up here just so you can kind of see it what it looks like, but this is essentially, and this is probably not exactly what it is, but there's brightness, it's brilliance, it overwhelmed him, there's fear attached to this. Keep this image in mind, by the way, uh, when we get to Daniel 3 next week. Nebuchadnezzar is the gold head, and then he wants to make everything gold, and I think that's fascinating. I'll, I'll say my comments on that, but uh, he has this vision, oh, and he's seeing these things, and here's the, the idea or the interpretation of this. Um, the church, by the way, is divided on some of the, these details. Um, we can get into that, but there seems to be more of a consensus overall on what he's seen. He's seen his empire, the Babylonian empire, the head of gold. It's brilliant. He's talking about you have authority over everything, and there will be an empire after you, but it's not as powerful, essentially, but yet it's still will overtake you. And so uh, we'll kind of put this up here just so you can kind of see it. The head of gold is obviously Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian kingdom. You can see the dates for that kingdom. The next kingdom is the Medes and Persians, or the, the Medo-Persian kingdom. Um, essentially, this, this kingdom kind of is birthed out of modern-day Iran. Imagine, like, brothers or tribes that eventually kind of, like, had their own tribes, but kind of unite at times, kind of depart at times. But they're, they're essentially the Medes and the Persians. You have Darius, who's like a Mede. You have Cyrus, who's a Persian. They're actually related to each other. So the point is, like, even though you see these kind of, like, two dual kingdoms, and think about the chest and the arms. There's two arms. So you have, like, Medes, Persians, if you want to think about it like that. Um, but you have Babylon, the head of gold, a kingdom after it, the Medes and the Persians. And we'll, we'll get to that because the Bible has a lot to say, actually, about 
Cyrus, before he's even born, which is amazing. Uh, then you have the middle or the belly and the thighs of bronze. This would be the Greek Empire. There seems to be reference to a strong leader out of the Greek Empire. We would say that's Alexander the Great. Again, we'll get to this in Daniel 7 if I'm overwhelming you. And then we'll see the legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. This has been attributed to the Roman Empire. Now, we can talk about the toes and like the feet of clay mixed with iron. There seems to be actually like a, a few different ideas of why there's these ten toes um, mixed with, with iron and clay. And it, obviously, it falls apart. Just keep the big thing in mind. The big thing in mind is this rock that no one cut out that essentially falls from the sky makes this whole thing come crashing down. But this, this Roman Empire has kind of been interpreted in different ways. You kind of see the dates here. A few of these dates might be debated amongst which scholar or historical scholars, like how long these empires lasted. But here is what is fascinating. And here's what I love about this. Um, I, try to, I have about 15 different commentaries I'm trying to read through Daniel right now as we prepare for this. And I like to read some of the more liberal scholars and more of the conservative scholars. And I love just seeing some of the more liberal scholars trying to like dismiss this because it's so specific. Dan this was probably not written by Daniel. I'm sorry, this was so clearly written by Daniel. But I'm, I'm going to stay away from that. The idea was like it's, it's, just, it's too specific. It freaks them out. How did he know what empire would come next? How do you know it'd be the the Medes, or how do you know like it'd be this empire in this specific way? And you'll see this more in Daniel seven. How do you know there'd be another empire that seems to reflect the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire? Um, so there's a, a lot of interest to me around this. This ten toes, by the way. I don't know if I'm gonna fully answer this question. Um, it's cool, actually. Uh, Isaac Newton has a commentary on Daniel. Fun fact, right? And you can read his thoughts on what these ten toes are. And he thinks Rome split into like ten different provinces and kingdoms. And he thinks that some think this is yet future and that the Roman Empire, it fell, but it, there's kind of like there's residue of modern kingdoms. And maybe we'll see this later. Here's what Warren Wearsby says, because good old Warren Wearsby, we need him. He says this. It appears that the Roman Empire will in some ways continue until the end of the age and culminate in the rule of ten kings. And I would encourage you to read these verses of Revelation 17, and he tries to tie it together. So if you're like, what are these ten toes mixed with clay? The whole idea is kingdom after kingdom will come and go, but it will ultimately fall. I don't want to get lost too much in the ten toes thing, even though I, know, I feel like I've talked to a lot of you, like, what are the ten toes? I don't know, we're going to talk about ten horns. And those ten horns are probably the same thing as the ten toes. Like just, if I'm confusing, I'm sorry. Come to Daniel chapter 7. But you're going to see some similarities and crossover, these visions. People have questions. Do not miss the big picture. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, after you, another kingdom. After that kingdom, another one and another one. And they're going to fall. Another one, sorry. They're going to fall. And these kingdoms are going to fall down. But there's going to be a kingdom that will remain forever and ever. And that is the idea. And I do not want to lose sight of that. Here's some things I, I think we have to point out because it is necessary. If you've noticed gold to silver... And you notice like this weakening and lessening and cheapening of the material. And you have more of the pricier material then and now. And it goes from like pricier to like less. And so let me put these up here because I do think there's also an analogy in that. Uh, we'll put this up here about the metals. The metals decline in value from top to bottom, right? Gold, silver, bronze, iron. It's a lessening in value. The metals decline in position. So the head being the most prominent and the feet being the lowest or the base. The metals decline in atomic weight. One author finds this, points this out. This statue cannot stand because it is on weak, uh, it's on a weak foundation, an insecure foundation. The specific gravity of gold is about 19, silver 11. But I love that thought. He's like, it's actually getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And that is part of the point, that these foundations, these empires will get weaker and weaker and weaker. Then he goes on. Uh, the metals get harder as they digress. Uh, as they digress. So the, the metals actually become harder. It's a reminder of the hardest of men towards God. Here's just what a few authors have agreed upon, like why does there seem to be like symmetry to this? Why does there seem to be a lessening or a cheapening to this? 
And so you see the kingdoms weakening and yet getting harder and more stubborn towards God. And yet, so as it gets harder and stubborn, it gets weaker as well. And you see that's going to crumble and fall apart. Uh, here's what verse 44 says. It says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. We have to talk about the stone that's cut from no mountain that essentially comes from heaven. The stone that grows, the stone that grows larger and larger, Obviously, with a stone, we'd point to, is, we'd say it's clearly a messianic reference to the Messiah, so to Jesus and to his kingdom. So if you're wondering, what is the stone? And think about the stone, gold, silver, and then the last thing is stone. And there is a progression even to that. You're like, why does the Messiah be the stone? Why is the Messiah the rock? Why does it seem actually less valuable? And there's many thoughts behind that, which is incredibly beautiful. We'll look at that. But I, I can't miss the big picture that there is this stone that comes and it destroys everything. It takes out the empires. Here's the thing. The scriptures could not be more clear on Jesus being the rock or the, the rock of offense. Or Psalm 118 talks about he's the chief cornerstone. Or Isaiah 8 talks about, uh, and we'll put the verse up here, Isaiah 8:14. he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, the Messiah. That Jesus is this rock, that Jesus is this stone. That as Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, that he is that foundation, that stone in which we build our lives upon. The stone couldn't be more clearly a picture of the Messiah, Jesus, and of the kingdom. So I love this because, by the way, you have to see this. I know I say this, but I want you to actually believe me on this. This book, every book is about Jesus. Every book is about the Messiah's rule and reign and his coming kingdom, and he'll make all things right. And the kingdoms of this world and the things of this world will grow strangely dim and fall apart, but his kingdom will remain forever. And we cannot miss the big picture of this dream that Nebuchadnezzar is having. He's having a vision of Jesus the rock ending all kingdoms and establishing a bigger and better kingdom. How good is God to say, let me just show this world empire, this Babylonian empire that's ruling the known world, you will come to an end just like every empire after you. But there will be a kingdom that will have no end. And we are living in this moment of waiting for that. We're in this moment waiting for that to come. And I have to like point this out, and I, I'll, just, I'll just throw it up here so you can see this, about the stone. There's a few similarities or things to acknowledge about the stone or the rock. Listen, the rock, notice the details, it says this. The rock is not cut with human hands, okay? The stone comes from above. It's the least valuable substance named, and it grows into a great mountain and filled the whole earth. These are the details around that stone or that rock. So the first thing, the rock is not cut up from, with human hands. There's no human ingenuity. It's divine. It, it's like man doesn't have part in this. God does this. God gets the credit. God gets the glory. It's not, it's not human hands that did this. We might participate in the building the kingdom, but in reality, God gets all the glory. It's not cut with human hands. It comes from above. I love that Jesus came from above. It's like we needed something, we, we needed salvation outside of ourselves. This is so key. We needed something to strike the, the feet. We need something outside of ourselves to come into our world. It comes from above. The least valuable substance named, I love it. The kingdom of God appears like foolishness to everyone. Wait, you're telling me your king was born in a stable? Your, your king was born just poor? That he was a carpenter? That, that he had nowhere to lay his head as he said in his own words? You're telling me you're king, for, you're king of kings? God of the earth came to Nazareth of all places? This is where he decided to spend his life, really. So you see, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The idea of the stone is saying, it, it, I know, yeah, look at it go from better to worse in a sense. It might not seem significant. 
And that's why Psalm 118 talks about we've kind of disregarded the chief cornerstone. We casted it out. There's no way it's this. And this reference to the stone is so clear. Also, another fourth thing is it grows into a mountain and filled the whole earth. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but rocks don't grow, right? Like in that sense, like if you cut out a rock and just leave it, it's not going to get bigger. This idea, though, this rock growing and growing and growing. And this kingdom of God, like it starts as a stone or a rock and it, it dis- demolishes all kingdoms and yet it grows. And what I love about that is the kingdom of God is here and not here. The kingdom of God is here, as Jesus said, but it's also not here. You've heard this put, we described this. This has been called just like, it's been called the already not yet, which I love. If someone's like, is Jesus ruling and reigning? Yes. But is he ruling and reigning physically, presently? Not yet. It's the already not yet. It's the kingdom of God is here, but also don't forget Jesus will come back one day and he will rule and reign. And like, yes, Jesus is still moving. Jesus is still working. The rock is growing and growing and growing into something bigger. And the kingdom of God is growing. And it's here and not here. And we're in this weird kind of moment. That's the moment we're in. We're in the here, the already, and the not yet. The here, the not here. That we participate in this kingdom, but we are also looking for the, the day that Jesus will come and rule and reign. And so what that means is this, even practically speaking. Um, you know, we are still filthy sinners who need the grace and love of God. We are not proclaiming or saying we have it all together. Like, we're, you know, look how righteous and good we are. No, we're here to say, no, we are broken sinners who've been saved by the blood and the grace of Jesus. We need him. We'll always need him. One day when we see him, we'll be like him, First John 3 says. We won't have sin. We'll see him. We'll be like him. But that's not here yet. We're still in this body of death. We're still in this body of flesh. But we are participants. But Jesus still redeemed me and gave me his righteousness. And like the, the kingdom of God is here in many senses, but it's also not physically present here. And so this, you see this rock growing and growing, speaking into that image. Here's the idea. Jesus is the rock of offense. He's the rock we've casted out. He's the rock we look at and say, this is not significant. He's the rock that grows and grows. The kingdom grows. And so I want you to think about, again, if you're Nebuchadnezzar, you have no context for this. You don't know what's after you. You don't know what's after that. And Daniel's like, let me tell you, there's a few kingdoms after you. They're basically the rule of known worlds, but they're all going to come to an end. And there will be a rock that will be established forever and ever. And this, this should bring us hope and clarity as well. This is the message of the New Testament. The New Testament is that Jesus came, he rose again from the grave, he ascended into heaven, and one day he will come again. You see, the, like the hope of the church was come, Lord Jesus. The hope of the church was God, Maranatha, come. Lord, come, we need you. Like the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13 says. Like we're looking for that. We're looking for the blessed hope. This kingdom that has no ends. So the kingdom's here, but not here. And the author of Hebrews picked up on this idea. The idea is this. Every kingdom is shaken and will come and go, but there will be a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot go. I love this. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. It says this. Therefore, church, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful. Why? For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So here's the only appropriate response to this. We are about to receive a kingdom, in a sense, that cannot be shaken. That we have, and we will. And it cannot be shaken. So our response, he says, is what? Worship and awe. Our response is gratefulness. Our response is, my hope is not in this world or this political world or who's next, president, or whatever. My hope is not in that. My hope is in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
You see, as Christians, I get it. We participate in this world. Absolutely, we should participate in this world. I think we should be stewards of the world God has given us. Absolutely, we should steward that well. We should steward everything well. Steward your resources well, your time well, your family well, your vote well. Everything we should steward, absolutely. It's not to diminish that, but it's to say that my hope is not in that. It's to say, I want to steward what God has given me. But can I tell you, after this, after our great country, after the next country, whatever, the kingdom of God will be here forever and ever and ever. That kingdoms will come and go. But on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus said, the rock that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, on this rock, on this stone that comes out of nowhere to strike down the kingdoms, to rise into a greater, more powerful kingdom. That's, that's my, my hope is in Jesus and his kingdom. And this is what basically Daniel is trying to introduce to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you lay in bed at night, worried, what's next? You know what's next. It's th- what's next for, for all of us? Death and the end. The end of you, the end of your kingdom, that lay, that's ahead for all of us but there's a kingdom that will always remain. One of my favorite truths about God, by the way, we can talk about the attributes of God. One of my favorite truths, I feel like from a very, like, I don't want to say young age. When I was 18 years old, I told you guys this. I read a book called The Attributes of God uh, by A.W. Tozer. And one of the attributes I had no expectation about, and it blew me away, was the immutability of God. He talks about the immutability of God. And here's why that's a big deal for me. My life changes a lot. A lot of things change. People come and go. Things come and go. My time comes and go. Like, things just are constantly and rapidly changing. But the immutability of God says that he will never change. He's the one constant in a world that's not constant. It, it, everything's falling apart. Everything's changing. But I have, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That I have this one constant thing. And I, under, I want you to understand in this vision, that's what he's pointing out. Everything rises and falls, Nebuchadnezzar, but the kingdom of God will abide forever. And so we, as people, can either respond by still trying to fight this and build our own kingdom, or we can build his kingdom. We can act like we know this, but then still kind of disregard this. Or we can say, no, I want to be a participator in this kingdom. I want to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to be one who seeks to bring your kingdom here now on earth. That's the reason why we're going through this book. That's the reason why our theme this year is on earth as it is in heaven. It's to say kingdoms come and go, but not his kingdom. So how do we be part of that? Daniel's like, you get a beautiful illustration, dream, vision, whatever, of just this idea of a kingdom that will always remain. You saw the stone, you saw the Messiah, you saw the kingdom, and it will never fade away. And I love that Daniel has a chance to share this with him. Um, I don't want to miss out on this. I don't want to move on in a sense. I can, I can share this until I'm blue in the face, but in reality, like, do you understand that Jesus is building a kingdom that will rule and reign forever? And we either confess him as Lord now or later, but regardless, it's going to happen. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He will establish a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is what Daniel is saying. He's saying that God knows all. God is over all. He gives us vision. Now, by the way, imagine you're Daniel and you just share this with Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom's going to fall, but don't worry. You're the head of gold, but it's still going to fall. Um, imagine sharing that with him. And I want you to see his response now. Look at verse 46. Well, and with this, verse 46, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, and he paid homage to the wrong person, to Daniel. And he commanded that an offering, an increase be offered up to him. He says, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him rule over the whole province of Babylon and chief, uh, and chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. You know, 
Nebuchadnezzar did promise this. He's like, if you can tell me my dream, interpret my dream, I'm going to give you these high honors. So, so Nebuchadnezzar did what he said he would do. I love Daniel, by the way. Daniel did not just be like, peace out, guys. I'm number two in the, like, the kingdom. He's like, hey, um, don't forget about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's like, okay. So they also became rulers and leaders. We'll explore them more next week in Daniel 3. But I love this. I love that he remembers his friends. I love that God honors his faithfulness. I love that Daniel could have been like, he could have downplayed this. But king, it comes apart, it falls apart, but you know, at least like you're the head of gold for a little bit. Like he, he just tells it like it is and the, and the king honors him. Um, at the end of the day, what, what, like, what's the most important thing in our life? That we just be faithful. Like the most important thing in life is that you just be faithful to what God has called you to do. So let me put it this way. When, G, when you stand before Jesus, according to Jesus in his own words, it sounds like if you live the life faithful to him, he'll just say what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Meaning, what is Jesus looking for? Faithfulness. Daniel was faithful. He's honored. He's still going to have more trials ahead. There's still going to be highs and lows. But God is just looking for faithful people who will deliver the message that he's given us. And he, gets, he receives honor for that. Listen, here's the thing. Um, there's a lot we could look at and do. I want to be faithful to the person of Jesus. We are going to take communion today. I want to say, let this, this cup, this juice, this bread... Be a reminder that kingdoms come and go, but one day we will take this with Jesus in his kingdom. That 1 Corinthians 11 says this, listen to this. As often as you drink or eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. Listen, communion is a reminder that Jesus is coming again. Communion is a reminder that you one day will not just be taking it from this little cup, but you'll be having a meal and a feast with Jesus and his kingdom will always remain. Like church, communion is a reminder of Daniel 2. All kingdoms come and go, but one day we'll feast at Jesus' table where his kingdom remains forever. I just want to say this. I want to end by just reflecting on the person of Jesus, this stone, this rock, not cut from, uh, with human hands, comes from above, that just grows and grows. I want us to reflect on the person of Jesus. And my hope is this. If you do not believe in Jesus, my hope and prayer is that you'd believe on Jesus right now, that you would know Jesus. If you do not know Jesus or believe in Jesus, I said this, don't take communion. There's no need to take this if you don't believe in him. There's no need. Why remember something you don't even believe in? But you still can right now. You can call upon the Lord right now. And believe on him right now. So here's what we're going to do. Why don't you just grab your little cup. Just hold it. I'm just going to pray. We're going to turn this into a little just moment of being just still and worshiping, and being quiet before God. And we just want to remember this rock, this stone, this kingdom that has no end. So Father, we just want to say thank you so much um, Lord, I, I just ask that right now you would quiet everyone's heart and mind. That Jesus, this vision that Nebuchadnezzar had would be just in our mind. This insane, glowing image of just precious metals who in your word and your kingdom remains. And so, Lord, I, I, I do ask, God, that you would remind us this is not be just some Daniel 2 vision thing. Jesus, remind us today of what matters Remind us of the kingdom that shall not be shaken. We want to approach you now with worship and awe. God, I ask that for myself and everyone in this room that we would do what Hebrews 12 says, that our only appropriate response, God, is worship and awe, that your kingdom shall always remain. Lord, that things will come and go, but we want to be part and participate in your kingdom. So, Lord, thank you. I just want to praise you now. We want to reflect on the cross, on your blood that was shed for our sins, on your body that was broken for us. We want to reflect on the truth that we'll eat this one day with you until you come. We'll eat this one day with you. We just want to say thank you, Lord. 
We just want to praise you now, Jesus. Guys, I'm going to say amen, but when you are um, ready, take, eat, and drink. We're going to have some worship going on. You just take a second, pray, talk to God, thank him for his body, thank him for his blood, thank him for his kingdom. This is just a time for you to reflect on the person of Jesus. Communion, just literally, the word Eucharist literally means to give thanks. We just give thanks. Give thanks for who he is, for what he's done. His kingdom is coming. His will will be done. It will be. Let's participate in that now. So enjoy your Lord, pray, we'll worship, sing, kneel, whatever you want to do. We just want to spend some time with Jesus as we take communion.